Today's scripture is Matthew 19:30 through chapter 20, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about, out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus, and it's great to see you all this morning. Some of you have been gone on vacation, and it's just great to see your refreshed faces. Um, others of you have yet to go on vacation, so hang with me. Um, if you fall asleep, I, I'm going to be here to keep you awake. Now, listen, we've been walking through Matthew's account of Jesus for a good while now, and Matthew, who walked and talked with Jesus, Matthew, who saw who Jesus was, he wants us to see who he saw, that Jesus is so much more than we often think he is, that Jesus is more than just a really smart rabbi or better than just a really empathetic person. He's no less than that, but really Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the king over everything. And if that's true, then that means we come and we approach what Matthew has recorded here about what Jesus has said very differently. We come not just expecting good advice or thoughtful insight, but really what Jesus has to say gives us an understanding of how the world works, this king who is over everything. And if we care anything about what it means to flourish as humankind, then we ask a wholly different kind of question. We come looking to Jesus and say, what does it look like for us to follow this king in everything? Now, there is one thing, as I was thinking about what it looks like for us to follow this king and everything, one thing that I didn't think was going to be challenging. You know, one topic that I really thought was going to be kind of like a breath of fresh air after we talked about the difficulties of forgiveness or the painful realities of divorce or even this radical call to generos generosity last week. One issue I never thought I would struggle with was grace. <laughs> because listen, you know, I'm the kind of guy who tears up when I see an article about an NYPD cop who gives boots to a homeless guy, or I'm the kind of guy who gets choked up when I hear about a mystery secret Santa who lives in Independence, Missouri, who goes around giving crisp $100 bills around Christmas and try to track him down so that I can be his friend. <clears throat> Look, grace is, grace is beautiful, isn't it? We love to sing, and so many of us have grown up singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, and yet... There's something deep down within me that can't stand grace. 
And I know, like, a pastor shouldn't say that. Like, there's probably some book out there that's like, things pastors shouldn't say, 10 terrible puns and five other things, you know? And I've never listened to that book anyway. So, but, but here's the deal. As, as a person, there's something about grace that, that I just can't stand. And instead, I want something like this. May it, now, <clears throat> some of you may... <laughs> Some of you may remember this moment, okay? This moment when the Texas Rangers second baseman Odor like lands a solid punch on the Toronto's Blue Jays' Bautista. Now, there was a series of events that led up to this moment that made Bautista eventually slide through second base and try to go for Odor's leg. And some would say intentionally, some would even say viciously, because if he'd hit his Odor's leg, it could have taken Odor out of Major League Baseball for a significant period of time. So when Bautista stands up, Odor just... Bam! You know, knocks him down. And what's the response of like everybody in the stadium? Are they like, man, what's wrong with Odor? Where's the grace, dude? No! Like everybody's cheering. Bautista got what he deserved. And we're like, yes! And that, I mean, or maybe I was. I don't know. This is, this is getting really personal really quick. But I mean, people were so excited. There was a restaurant owner in Texas who gave Odor free ribs for life because of this punch. There, <laughs> there's a t-shirt company that like immortalized this moment and put the hashtag never forget. <laughs> there's a group of fans who literally started a GoFundMe page to help pay for Odor's fines. And on the page, this is like a snippet. It says, Odor, yeah, sure, he should have to pay something, but there's some value as a spectator to seeing Joey Bats get punched in the face, right? We shouldn't enjoy this, but we do. And, and don't act like you don't. You know you do. If you're in that stadium, you'd been cheering right along next to everybody else. Because in that moment, moment Joey Bats, like, he, he stood for every school bully we knew growing up. He stood for every overbearing boss. He stood for every, like, delinquent coworker. They finally got what they deserved. Somebody just gave the justice right there with one fell move. But then there's this lingering question, like, you know, okay, what are we supposed to do with grace? you know, in moments like this. Because after all, grace is kind of the hallmark of Christianity, isn't it? I mean, we are saved by what? Grace. grace. Yeah, exactly. And so we come and we think to ourselves, man, this grace thing, I want justice. I want to cry out for justice. I long for justice. But grace, grace in a moment like that, that just seems infuriating. But maybe you're here this morning and you're like, all right, Gabe, this whole premise seems ludicrous. Grace isn't infuriating? Well, I would say that if grace never infuriates you, you don't understand how radical grace really is. But maybe I'm wrong. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you've never been resentful at a coworker who habitually comes in late and somehow still lands that bonus and that promotion. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you've never been ticked off as you've driven not at every homeless brother and sister, but maybe that one time you had a bad day and you just think, why don't they just get a job? Maybe I'm wrong and you don't have even the slightest tinge of joy when you see that picture of Joey Bats getting what was coming to him. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but, but maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, okay, look, I know there are moments where grace is just infuriating to me. And yet simultaneously, I know somehow that grace is at the very core of what it means to follow Jesus. So how do these fit together? How do we become the kind of people who can receive grace rather than resent grace? That's the question I'm asking myself this past week. That's the question I think we're posed with this morning. 
How do we become the kind of people who can receive grace rather than resent grace, even when it's infuriating, even when every fiber of our being wants justice and anything other than justice, even the slightest hint of grace feels wrong. Not that it is wrong, but it feels wrong. And I think this is really important because if we don't get this, if we don't become and become seeking to understand what it means to become the kind of people who can receive grace rather than resent grace, then we're going to become the kind of people who are bitter. We're going to become the kind of people where our, our main disposition is one of irritability and judgmentalism. We're going to become the kind of people whose friendships won't last past that first big blow up, where your imagination will be consumed more with contempt rather than forgiveness. We're coming together on a Sunday morning with other believers is going to feel like an unnecessary chore that eventually makes its way off your list. Or eventually you're going to spend most of your days, if we don't get this, if we don't become the kind of people who can receive grace rather than resent grace, where you're spending your days comparing your status, your spouse, your children, your job, your waistline, your luck to everyone else. And you'll find yourself in one of two pools that will eventually drown you, either a pool of self-pity or a pool of arrogance. You see, this is really really important, and there's a lot at stake on how we navigate the conversation around grace, especially when it's infuriating. The good news is that God knew we would really struggle with this. This, isn't you know, this doesn't fit nice and neat into our normal framework of how we go about our lives. And so he gives us a story this morning. How do we become the kind of people who receive grace rather than resent grace? Well, Jesus, he tells us a story in Matthew chapter 20. A story that gives us insight into the kingdom of heaven where this unfair ethic of grace reigns supreme. So let's take a look together. If you, don't, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And here Jesus starts off in verse 20 by, by saying that there's this guy, okay? And he owns a vineyard, so you know he's just a dynamite guy already. I mean, anybody who owns a vineyard, way to go. Um, and early in the morning, he goes to the street corner that's in front of whatever the ancient equivalent of the Home Depot is, and he's looking for some workers to come work his field. And he comes up to this first bunch of guys, and he's like, hey, why don't you guys come work in my field? And they say, hey, what about a denarius? And they come to a contractual agreement. They shake on it, and these guys, they go to the field. And everything about this, everything about this is fairly normal so far. This happens a lot in the first century. It actually still happens a lot in the 21st century around agricultural communities. But then about halfway through the morning, the owner of the vineyard, he makes his way back to the street corner. And he sees more workers standing there waiting for work. I mean, any kind of work. While contractors are going in and out, getting supplies for their jobs, while people are going about their day, these guys are standing, waiting, hoping for some place to just contribute, some place to make a living. They're looking for a job. And what's different about this second round of hiring that we see coming from this owner of this vineyard is that he never promises what he's going to pay them. This time he says, why don't you go to the vineyard and I'll give you a just wage, okay? And they go because they don't have any other better prospects at the time. They think something is better than nothing, so I'm going to go work because I need a place to work. And here the story starts to get a little weird after this second one because about another three hours later, the owner of the vineyard comes back to the street corner and he sees more people waiting for a job. And he hires them. 
And then he comes another three hours later and he finds another group of guys who are waiting for a job and he hires them. And this starts to beg the question, like, is this owner of the vineyard, is he a moron? Like, does, does he, can he not figure out how many workers he needs from day one or at least through the second round of employment, right? What gives? Is he like in over his head? Did he inherit this vineyard from his dad? And this is like day one, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, interestingly enough, nowhere in this story that Jesus tells us do we see that it's incompetence that drives this owner to come back to the street corner again and again and again. Instead, I want you to imagine he comes to the street corner, let's say for, these, for the first group of guys, and he sees these men who don't have a place of employment. Employment that out of this employment, these are day laborers where they got their income to provide food for their families, a place of dignity and worth. And so out of compassion, he comes back time and again, not because he has a huge surplus of need, but because he sees a huge surplus of need for jobs. He's a landowner. He's a pretty wealthy guy and he can provide avenues of vocation for men who have no place of contribution. And, he, and he, out of compassion, he hires them. And with that framework, we now come to the final hour of the day. One hour left in the workday. At this time, anybody who's there on the street corner, they've either been hired or they basically should give up. Because nobody's going to come and hire you for one hour's worth of work. I mean, this is 5 p.m. at this point. And so the owner of the vineyard, he comes... And he arrives and he sees there's still a few men standing there. They're unwilling to go home to their wives and their children with empty pockets. Unwilling to go home until they've tried and exhausted every avenue to get some sort of income, to provide some sort of avenue of food for their families. And so he comes up to these men and he asks a really strange question. If it really was incompetence, then this manager or this, this owner of the vineyard would never ask this question. What does he ask? If you look here in verse 6, it's something like, why have you been standing here doing nothing all day? And they respond, because we don't have a job. We've been looking for a job and we don't have anything to do. We're waiting. They wanted work. And they proved that they'd do anything, I mean, just anything to get it. So the owner, out of his compassion, he just gives them some cash and they go home and they take care of their families. Wait, that's actually not what's in the text, is it? Actually, um, what he does... Just make sure you're still with me. I know, I know. Um, what he actually does is he doesn't promise them a dime, but he gives them a job. Do you see this? And they run to the fields without any guarantee of pay. Why? If you've ever found yourself in a place of unemployment for a significant period of time, what you want is a place to contribute. Even more than money is like, what can I do with the hands that God has given me? How can I participate in society and actually contribute for the common good? How can I be a part of this? And in the back of the mind of these guys are two things. One, maybe out of his grace, maybe just maybe out of his grace, he'll still pay me something and something's better than nothing. Or maybe this one hour is a trial run. And I'm going to prove myself so that tomorrow morning when he needs more workers, I'll be one of the first ones he picks. So either way, this is a win. And so to recap, right, you've got the workers who've been out there all day under contract for one denarius, which is a pretty common day's wage. Then you've got these other three groups of workers who aren't promised a wage, but that it's going to be just. That's all that they're promised. And then you have these Johnny-come-latelys who aren't promised squat. 
And now I think the story starts to get real, all right? So in verse 8, we come to the end of the day, and then we see that this owner of the vineyard, he calls his foreman or his estate manager, which is really weird because why is the owner going out in the heat of the day to find these employees? That's why you have a manager. Your manager finds the employees, hires the employees, and then manages the employees. That's really strange behavior for an owner of the vineyard. And we'll come back to that here in a little bit. But then the owner, he tells the foreman, I want you to gather everybody together, okay? And I want you to pay everybody the wage. In our text, it says wages, but it's actually singular, the wage. And he says, I want you to pay everyone a denarius, one day's full wage, but I want you to start with the guys who only worked an hour so that the guys who've been working all day can watch. <laughs> well, doesn't that just sound a little vindictive? But what he's trying to do is show off his generosity in a good way to even prepare the hearts for understanding that this owner of the vineyard cares for the whole community. Now, if you're, if you're one of those guys, you've been working 12 hours, back-breaking work, and everybody's gathered together, and you see the guy who's earned or he's just been working an hour, maybe barely broke a sweat, and he gets a full day's wage, what is your, what is your first thought? Dude, the owner's being generous. Like, I'm about to get a bonus here. Like, this is going to be great. Like, that would be my first thought. I'm like, oh, yes. You know, like, I came for a denarius, and he's going to go over the top because this is ridiculous. So if he's that stupid, I mean, come on. Now, then suddenly you start to see everybody's getting a denarius, right? <laughs> and what you would never, ever, ever expect is that you've just worked 12 hours. And when you get your paycheck, it's going to be the exact same amount as the guy who worked one hour. What's the age-old mantra of just wages? Equal pay for equal work, right? If you work more, it's only fair that you get paid more. But then this happens. Now, I need five volunteers, and I need you to just stand up. Five volunteers. There it is. See, that pulls out. One, I need four more. Two, three, four. Who's five? Five. Excellent. Okay. So you're the Johnny Come Lately, Kelly. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> imagine at this moment, the foreman's going around and he goes first to the person who worked one hour and he says, one denarius. There you go. Remain standing, please. Okay. And then he goes to the person who worked three hours, one denarius. And he goes over to the person who worked six hours, one denarius. And then he goes over to the person who worked nine hours, one denarius. You're going to lose me for a second. And then, uh, then he goes to the person who's worked all day. I mean, all day. One denarius. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> and uh, now, if, if you want to know what you can do with that dollar, there's an offering box in the back. And... <laughs> No, I mean, no, I'm just joking. I mean, you came to church, so congratulations. You never know when you're going to get money. Um, we do whatever we can to get people to come back. So, um, no, but in all seriousness, this would be shocking, wasn't it? Wouldn't it? You're standing there. And look, I know everybody got what they were promised. The owner of the vineyard is full of integrity here. He's not broken a promise. He has not been dishonest in any way, shape, or form. But come on. <laughs> this is ridiculous, Right? And so, actually, the guys who've been working all day, they have this spokesman who comes and says what they've all, yeah, like, Johnny, get up there, like, get up there. So he, like, gets up, hey, 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 you know, I, I just don't think this is fair. I, I don't understand. I mean, I know you promised a denarius, but come on. You can't just give them preferential treatment because they didn't have work. 
And I want you to understand this. This is very, very important. None of them are complaining about being underpaid. That's a totally different argument. Everyone is paid really well. The real argument is against the owner because he was gracious. Everyone's paid really well and their needs are cared for. But the argument is against the owner because he was being above and beyond generous. How does the owner respond? We see here in our passage, in our story, he says, look, you don't have a right to complain. (laughs) I gave you what I promised. Now you got it. Now go do what you want with it. But this is my money. And I can do what I want with what is mine. And I've chosen to be generous to these families so that they have enough food to eat tonight. So who are you to complain? Now, I want you to stop and think about that. The guys who only worked an hour, they get to go home. The whole day they thought that they were not going to be able to provide for their families. But they go home and they've got food in their hands. And their kids are excited and they're able to actually eat together. And not only that, but this husband, this father walks in the door with dignity because he had a place to contribute, a job. He wasn't a charity case. He really had a place to contribute. And you see how dynamic and how gracious that is to not just give, but to provide a place of contribution. The wisdom of this master is just astounding. And verse 15, it ends with this question from the owner to the guys who worked all day. And the question it's posed to us today, don't miss this, here it is, do you begrudge my generosity? In other words, in other words, are you really ticked off at me because I was generous to these families? Are you really ticked off at me because I was generous to these families? Are you going to choose to receive what I've given you or resent it? And then it ends with this proverb at the very end here at verse 16. So the last will be first, which we saw, and the first will be last. And then the story comes to the screeching halt. It doesn't really end. We don't know if the guys receive it or they resent it, if they keep pressing for more or they just shrug their shoulders in acceptance. Instead, it's left just uncomfortably open. And here's why. Because it has nothing to do with those characters. It has everything to do with you and me this morning. We're left answering that question. And suddenly we look up from Jesus' stories like we have so many times and we realize we're the ones on center stage. And the question is posed to us. Will we begrudge his generosity? How will you respond? You see, there are only two, two responses to that question possible. And this is meant to make us really uncomfortable, to be clear. You can either receive his grace and the one who gives it or you can resent his grace and the one who gives it. That's it. Receive it or resent it. Those are the only two options coming out of the story. And it is so easy to resent his grace, isn't it? Or grace in general. Because it's just not fair. Put yourself in these guys' sandals. Once again, okay, think about this. You are out there. You get sweat in your eyes. You know, you're struggling to stay hydrated. You're underneath the Middle Eastern sun. 11 hours in, your back is breaking. And then these guys who come for like one hour and suddenly you could start comparing checks, you look over his shoulder and you've all got the same amount. I mean, come on. There would be an uproar if that happened in our community. There'd be an article on wage disparity and your company highlighted in the Kansas City Star the next day. It's meant to show how absurd and unfair God's grace is. And that's the whole point of Jesus' story here. We hate stuff that's not fair. We hate it in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. 
I mean, think about it this way. We, we, it shows up in what we celebrate and, what we tr- and who we try to distance ourselves from. Like, who do we love to celebrate? We love in our culture to celebrate rags to riches stories. Why? Because against all odds, through great determination, great perseverance, through great discipline, they've earned their place to be that iconic figure in history. So we can look at them and say, see, you'll get what you deserve if you work hard enough. And we celebrate them. And when they say that they're Christians or become Christians, we put them on a platform and say, look, what a great platform for the gospel. And part of that's true. But part of the reason we celebrate them so much is because if we just tell ourselves, if we work hard enough, we'll get what we deserve. And we all deserve what we work hard for. But then what we avoid, let's look at another story of someone who chose to follow Jesus and we avoided them like the plague. This is what happened to Jeffrey Dahmer. Remember him? The Milwaukee cannibal. I mean, I even heard somebody over here say, that's the murderer, you know? Like, but on his deathbed, or at least while he was in prison, he gave his life to Christ. And how did countless of Christians respond? Oh, this is some ploy for him to get out of prison early. This can't be real. What does he deserve? He deserves justice, not grace. How could God? I mean, God would never. Think of all those people. That's ridiculous. And then when he's killed by an inmate in his cell, the world over celebrates a Bautista style of rejoicing. But what we celebrate and what we avoid and who we celebrate and who we avoid, we reveal how infuriating grace makes us. Grace, getting what you don't deserve and the good things that we don't deserve. And you know, this type of thinking, this resentfulness of grace, it kind of shows up everywhere, like around Christmas. <laughs> you know, as adults, we, we don't give gifts, do we? We trade them. <laughs> and, um, check. You know, like, um, that's why we even have like a price ceiling when it comes to white elephant gift exchange. Uh, or the, otherwise, you're going to find someone like the Michael Scott who yells, so Phyllis is basically saying, hey, I know you did a lot to help the office this year, but I only care about you in oven mitts worth. I gave Ryan an iPod, right? And I'm like, we're comparing. <laughs> we cry out injustice, but God's grace isn't fair. Some feel like they get oven mitts. Others are celebrating iPods. And to be clear, I want you to understand this. In God's ethic of grace, everyone's cared for. We just want everyone to earn it, like we did, of course, right? The unwed mother who gets pregnant, she's got to pay for that. She's going to have to suffer. Why? Because she deserves that. Well, for me, I've been good. Wait a second. Okay, so here's the deal. If grace is so infuriating in ways that we don't even want to admit, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit, why on earth would you receive it, right? This is, this is the million-dollar question or the denarius question, I guess. Um, why, why receive it at all? Here's why. It's because it's the only hope we've got. It's the only hope any of us has. We demand justice because we think we're okay with fairness. We think we've done enough good to be on the upswing. That we have the right to good things. But what happens in our story when these workers come to the owner of the vineyard and say, give me what I rightfully deserve? The owner of the vineyard which represents God, reminds us of his rights to us. This is all mine. Do I not have the right to do what, what is mine? 
And that doesn't feel good. Because that's, that's mine. I have the right to it. And God's like, no, no, no. I have a right. I am the person. I am the king over everything. And we so quickly forget that every single one of us starts on the street corner, waiting for the owner of the vineyard to come and call us to the work. Whether you've been on the field for 12 hours or one hour, we all, it all starts with God graciously pursuing us and finding us and not only paying our payment. You see, he didn't send his manager. Not ultimately, God himself came and sought us out in the person of Jesus Christ and he paid our debt. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He, does, he takes all that we have rightfully deserved, the wages of sin, death, and he takes them upon himself. And he now gives us the riches of the grace of the gospel and even calls us and invites us into the, the dignity of participating in his good work of redemption now, the good work of new creation and cultivation. This is God's masterful wisdom and his grace. He isn't, it's not that he isn't concerned about justice. He just always goes one step beyond. And we need that. He doesn't compensate us based upon retribution, but based upon need. That's the unfair ethic of grace. That is the only way we can stand before him. And this is what we see time and again with Jesus, isn't it? He provides a space for those who've screwed their lives up so deeply according to societal standards and also provides space for people who have actually managed their life pretty well according to societal standards. All is open. But either way, we're all waiting on the street corner. Every single one of us. And we need him to call him. So if that's true, even though we resent grace, if this is the only option we've got, well then how on earth do we become the kind of people how on earth can we live lives receptive to grace rather than living lives that are resenting the grace that God gives to others that we so deeply need in ourselves? Instead of being judgmental and bitter, how do we become the kind of people who are receptive, receive, and actually dominated by grace? And here it is. I think we've got to go back to the fundamentals, the ABCs of grace. And the ABCs are this. Admit, believe, and commit. Say that with me. Admit, believe, and commit. Admit, believe, and commit. These are the fundamentals, the ABCs of grace. And the first one is you have to admit to God and to one another that everyone needs God's grace. No one has earned their keep in the kingdom. You didn't start off in the field. But it always starts with God's gracious pursuit of us. We have to begin with grace in mind. You have to admit that. And then you believe, you believe that God came in Jesus to offer his grace to us. That in the incarnation, that God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He came, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, justice. That Christ received our justice that we might receive his grace. The riches that comes in all of this. And no matter how screwed up you feel like your life has become, no matter how long you've been standing at the street corner, the offer still stands. And then after you've admitted and after you've believed and you commit to live in gratitude rather than grumbling to the owner of the vineyard, to the owner, the master of the universe, you acknowledge that since God is the owner of it all, he has every right to dispense his grace as he wills. It is his right, not ours. 
So how do you become someone who receives grace and that becomes the very fabric of your life rather than resenting grace? You gotta go back to the fundamentals. You gotta go back to the ABCs and daily admit that you need his grace. Daily believe that God in Christ came for us. He didn't even send an extra manager. He came himself to pursue us, to pay our penalty, to offer grace free of charge and now commit your life to live in gratitude rather than grumbling. That's the very fabric of a life that lives in light of grace. And you know what happens when we actually start living that way? When, it, when grace begins to dominate the way we see the world, you're going to hold grudges a lot less. Your fuse on anger will grow a lot longer. You'll become less defensive over time and more compassionate in conversations. You'll be able to be utterly honest about how broken the church is, but never more committed simultaneously because you know grace is at the core it's not because those people deserve your commitment. It's because it's a community driven by grace. Suddenly failure becomes an okay option in your life and perfectionism gets crushed by the weight of grace. And there's joy. Oh, there's deep joy. Because even when the Lord takes away what he has so graciously given, you can say, blessed be his name. Because it's all grace. It is his rightful place, not yours. Your kids can try things and fail and you not blow up on them. Your spouse can try things and fail and you not blow up on them. You're more present in relationships because you're not trying to earn everybody's approval but seeking to give grace. You don't take stuff personally all the time and you're so quick to forgive because you know you didn't deserve it either. You know what you deserved but you got more than that. You see, grace changes everything. And it can do one of two things. Depending on how you receive it or not, you can either choose to become a more receptive person to grace or more resentful. The choice is yours. The question is open here. It's open to each and every one of us. And so I ask you this morning, how will you respond afresh to the grace that comes in the gospel? Will you receive it? And so let it change everything? Or will you resent it? Let's pray. grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We sang that this morning, God. May those be more than words. May that be the defining marker in even how we see ourselves in light of what you've done for us. Forgiven, accepted, free, and knowing that it's all out of you and your generous character that we stand before you blameless in the person of Jesus Christ. May we become the kind of people who receive that in the very depths of who we are, daily remember to admit, believe, and commit. May we become those people, and when resentment sparks its ugly head, may we confess and return once again to receive grace. God help us. By the power of your spirit, that is possible. The one who convicts our hearts of sin and points us to the truth of the gospel in Jesus. May that be true for us this morning, for each of us. And so leave this morning more committed to the grace of the gospel. 
as you have been always committed to us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.